indicated earlier, the preaching of God's Word is from the book of Ezra, chapter 5, and particularly verses 6 through 5, or chapter 6, verse 15, chapter 5, verse 6, through chapter 6, verse 15. To help us focus, notice a few of the passages first, verses 6 and 7 of chapter 5, the copy of the letter that Tatnai governor on this side of the river and Shathar Bosnai and his companions, the Afarsakites, which were on this side of the river, sent unto Darius the king. They sent a letter unto him, wherein was written thus, unto Darius the king, all peace. And as you'll remember, there is the testimony of their investigation and their report. You'll notice then as well, the recommendation from Tatnai, verse 17. Now therefore, if it seem good to the king, that there be search made in the king's treasure house, which is there at Babylon, whether it be so, that a decree was made of Cyrus the king to build the house of God at Jerusalem, and let the king send his pleasure to us concerning this matter. The opening of chapter 6 reminds us indeed that uh, Darius does just that. He finds Cyrus' decree. Notice verse 6 of chapter 6. Now therefore, these are the words of Darius Tatnai, governor beyond the river, Shithar Boznai and your companions, the Afarsakites, which are beyond the river, be ye far from thence. Let the work of this house of God alone, let the governor of the Jews and the elders of the Jews build this house of God in his place. Notice he makes a further decree that there should be the financing of these things. And likewise, verse 11, that whosoever shall alter this word, let timber be pulled down from his house, and being set up, let him be hanged thereon, and let his house be made a dunghill for this. Verse 13 records Tatnai's faithful discharging of his calling. And verse 14 testifies of the elders of the Jews prospering as they built. Notice, he prospered through the prophesying of Haggai the prophet, Zechariah, the son of Iddo. And verse 15 records, this house was finished on the third day of the month, Adar, which was in the sixth year of the reign of Darius, the king. Now, brethren, we have the unfolding of merciful and gracious providence. The display of providence is a beautiful thing when it is we see it backwards. Someone has said, and it's been regularly repeated, that providence is best read as the Hebrew language. To read it, you have to read it backwards. And so English, of course, we read left to right. Hebrew, you read right to left. And in order fully to understand providence, you have to get to the end and in some sense work backwards. And then the display of God's wisdom is most clear. Well, divine providence is a truth that is easy to believe on paper. We see it in the Scriptures so clearly testified. And when things are going well, of course, we're ready to ascribe all to God's providence and testify of His goodness and go on from there. But divine providence is difficult to embrace when in the midst of trial. Because though we stand assured by God's Word, even as we see in Romans, that God works all things together for the good of His people, God works all things together for the good of those that love Him who are the called according to His purpose. We are confident of that. Yet so often in the exercise of our souls in the midst of God's providential 
carriage and oversight, we don't yet see the fruit that we long to see. And the exercise between the trial and the guaranteed good that is to come is preeminently an exercise of faith. It demands that we walk not by sight, that we walk by faith. It demands that we look in the eye all of the trials that surround us and say these things are but phantoms and ghosts. The reality of what shall come to pass. They're real in the sense that they're real experiences. They're real pains. But when Satan says to us in the midst of heavy and hard trials, see this is reality. This is what the lot of the godly is. It is most necessary at that time that we are able to testify, oh, though these things are real and are really difficult, burdensome and painful, yet I know that all shall in the end testify most clearly, most certainly of the Lord's goodness in every jot and tittle of the handwriting of providence. We have such a display of it before us from chapter 5, verse 6 through 6 and verse 15. We could say far more than that. We have a display of providence from Genesis 1, verse 1 to the end of Revelation 22. The whole of the record of Scripture is a testimony of God's outworking His good and holy decree for His glory and the good of His people. We could go further yet than that and say the whole of history from Genesis 1, verse 1 unto the end of time, will testify every little detail has been perfectly ordered in what is good, not only to the praise of God, but in every detail good to the good of His people. Brethren, these again are easy words to state. And we know enough of the Bible that certain verses come to mind readily and we're able to say, I see it, I acknowledge it. But it's far different to live through it. It's far different to live in the exercise of faith. Well, we bless God that He records for us circumstances that you and I didn't experience, and yet real circumstances still that remind us. It's not just a doctrine that is somehow abstract and ethereal and not real and concrete. It is the testimony of what God really does. Providence is shown here in the working of God in adverse circumstances for the good of His people. Now, to make sure we're seeing the parts of the text before us, you notice in the text is Tatnai's letter to King Darius. This extends from chapter 5, verse 6, through verse 17 of the same. It's there that he reports of the rebuilding and the uh, efforts that are underway. You'll remember that there was a stalling of that effort until it was that the minister's Haggai and Zechariah did prophesy, which we considered somewhat last week, and in which prophecies there were words of reproof and correction and encouragement of the gospel of Christ, of the hope and certainty of blessing, all of these things bound up. And what happened was, they who were, had become contented to dwell in their houses while the house of God uh, grew overgrown, were now stirred up to give themselves again to its rebuilding. And now it's being prospered. Tatnai sees this. He has some sense of his own demand to be 
uh, ruling his portion to the, uh, in accordance to uh, Darius. And so he writes. You have uh, their investigation, verses 9 through 16, in this letter stated. We asked this, we asked their names, and so on. It records as well the Jews' response. Verse 11, we are the servants of the God of heaven and earth. Isn't that a blessed thing? It's not just, well, we have this special commission. They trace it back to the source. We are serving God. That's preeminent. They don't first appeal to their civil right. They first appeal to their divine right. We are the servants of the God of heaven and of earth. And build the house that was built and so on. They acknowledge their sin, their forefathers' sin, and yet likewise the divine providence that brought about Cyrus. Well, you'll notice the states on through verse 16 till you'll get to verse 17 where Tatnai gives his recommendation and counsel to King Darius. Now, therefore, if it seem good to the king, let there be search made in the king's treasure. So you have Tatnai's letter. You have Darius' response then, 6 verses 1 through 12, where search is made, records are found, the contents are acknowledged, and Cyrus' decree is discovered. Darius gives his counsel to protect the Jews and thus to fulfill what elsewhere is called the law of the Medes and the Persians, which no one can alter. And likewise, does Darius, not altering, but rather strengthening this decree, add his own determination, as he says in verses 8 through 12, that there should be no interference given, but more than that, that there should be fresh provision given to the Jews. And then anyone who would alter this, anyone who would stand opposed to it, their livelihood should be taken from them, the wood erected into that of gallows, and they themselves hanged thereon, as it is in verse 11. And so Darius gives his word. Tatnai then, verse 13, obeys, and the work of the Jews prospers until it is, in verse 15, recorded, that this house was finished. Here is the tapestry of providence. Now, we take this up to help us see how it is that providence works in one sense, but also to see what our duty is as we await the outworking of the promised good. To help us then consider, as we think on the display of providence, firstly, the mystery of the display. Secondly, the awaiting for the display. And lastly, the blessing of of the display, the mystery, the awaiting, and the blessing of the display of providence. The first, then, the mystery of the display. It's a mystery, of course, not because it is unrevealed that God shall work all things together for the good of His people, but it is a mystery because there are times that come in our lives where we say, I have no idea how the least of these things can turn out to any good, whether it's to me individually or to the church more largely considered. There are seasons where our perspective is confused. For surely we would think, if God is going to work this together for my good, if He's to work this together for our good, if He's to work this together for His glory, surely something is going to change very quickly. 
We often feel that way. And brethren, we have not in our land known what it is to experience outright and full-on persecution, but doubtlessly Christians have faced that very question in the midst of persecution. There have been those who have seen their husbands shot on the spot in the killing times in Scotland. We have famed accounts of the king's dragoons, as they were called, as footmen, as soldiers, who would pull off those who were suspected of attending so-called outlawed conventicles or meetings in the fields to worship God as he had ordained. And just at the suspicion, they were warranted to shoot the man on the spot. And there, the, their wives saw their husbands put to death. Children saw their husbands put to death. And surely such times would cause men, women, and children to wonder, how, how is this going to turn out to good? There are experiences, of course, wherein God's people see things happening in their own homes. And they wonder, how is this going to turn out to good? They have unconverted children. How is this going to turn out to our good? They see the church suffering reproach. How is this going to turn out to our good? They see all of these things taking place. And because of our limited vantage point, we necessarily have this curiosity, if not doubt. How is this going to turn out to any good? Brethren, notice that the Jews would have been faced with this very thing. It is that you have Zerubbabel and Jeshua, verse 2, who began to build, and it's then that Tetanai comes and say, what are you doing? Who hath commanded you to build this house? Doubtlessly at that point, they would have had this question come to their mind, how is this going to turn out? And then what are your names? Doubtlessly, they would have thought, well, here it comes. And as Tatnai, in his authority, starts to take this down, and with his counsel, starts to take it down, and they see them go off, and they know they're going to write to this uh, king, Darius, they would have been struggling, perhaps, with the thought, how is this going to turn out? Save that they had the very thing that you and I have. They had the ministry of God's Word. Haggai and Zechariah had gone before. Haggai and Zechariah were with them, and the Word of God was telling them, this will turn out to the glory of God and the good of His kingdom. Brethren, do you have anything less than that? Do you have anything less than what Zerubbabel and Jeshua had and the Jews that worked with them? You have the same things, in essence, when you have so many things you can point out and say, I don't see how this thing is going to work out. I see pain, I see difficulty, I see hardship. Yep, I understand that there are promises in God's Word, but let's look again at what I see. Let's look at the hardships. Don't you see how clearly the circumstances are severe? Don't bother me again with the words of God. I know there are general promises. I know there are good things. I'm talking about real life. We may not speak that way, but isn't it how implicitly we start to think about things? Real life, we're tempted to think, is the flesh and blood of what's transpiring before us. Instead of the very word 
of God, which is sure. It is settled fast in the heavens. It testifies that all things, all things, are being worked together for good. It doesn't mean that all of our desires are going to turn out as we would have them. But one thing that that does mean, though, is that as He works out all things for good, there's nothing better to be done than what He does. And it's us, we, who think that we know better than God. If God were good, He would give me what I'm asking for. If God were good, He would take this pain away. Couldn't you almost hear Paul say unto God, if he were not as strong in faith by God's grace as he was made to be, Lord, if you're good, take the thorn away from my flesh. If you're good, remove it from my side. If you're good, don't you see? If you were to remove this from me, I would be more unhindered to serve you. All of these arguments come in our minds with our own circumstances. But we have to remember, our perspective is far inferior to this perspective of the all-wise God. God knows all that He's doing. Have you ever watched a master artist work on a canvas? There are things they do that to you and me who are untrained, we look at and say, what is going to come of that? What is going to take place when they're finished? And you sit back, you sit back almost doubting and ready to criticize and say, listen, if you're an artist, let me tell you a few things that you need to correct about this. But you sit back, and the artist who has the training, who has the perspective, knowing how the colors are going to combine, how the background needs to be shaded, and all these things that are coming to pass, knows what's taking place. While we stand as ignorant in our perspective, thinking that it needs to look precisely as we want it to look now, But the artist knows there are strokes that have to precede other strokes in order to make the beauty appear in its fullness. Brethren, God is far superior to the best artist that has ever lived. And every stroke of God's sovereign brush is perfect in its detailing the beauty and glory that shall come to be seen. Never will a Christian look back at the end of his or her life and say, that was unnecessary. That wasn't what it should have been. Well, if God had done this differently, my life would be far better and God would be more praised. Every Christian at the end of this life will look back and say, God has done all things well. The reason that it remains a mystery is quite simple. We're finite. We're limited. What would the Jews have thought as Tatnai goes off and he sends his messenger to Darius? Oh, how is this going to come back? Our perspective is limited. Moreover, the activities, quite honestly, are beyond our control. This makes it all the more mysterious. We love to have control, don't we? We love to be able to say, well, I'll move this there and that there and so on. Husbands and wives bicker over what's on the radio. Well, you know, let me have control of the dial, or, you know, where are we going to stop? All these things that go on because each is vying for 
control. If it's in my control, well then, I know what's going to happen. Well, brethren, this is something that you and I have to come face to face with. Everything is outside of your control. Everything. There's nothing that you can do that will guarantee so much as any action to follow. This doesn't mean that we aren't responsible, nor does it mean that God doesn't use us, nor does it mean that we aren't means in His hand as He graciously causes us both to believe and obey to further His work. But it does mean that ultimately nothing's in our control. It stands outside of our control and rests completely in the authoritative, the loving, the sovereign control of God. Tatnai comes. Who's controlling Tatnai? Ultimately, God. Tatnai writes his letter. Who's controlling the messenger? Ultimately, God. Darius receives the letter. Who's controlling Darius? God. All of these things are perfectly orchestrated by God. And brethren, here's the truth. Every activity in your life right now is in the perfect control of God. Every single one. And whereas it's not the move we would make, the move that's being made is being made by one unable to be quantified how much wiser he is than you and I. Far superior in goodness than you or I. Far better than you or I. And every activity that is taking place is in his complete control. Oftentimes, providence is likened unto the tapestry and how it is on the backside of the tapestry. You'll see a confused modeling of colors and threads and so on. But once it's turned over, you see the beauty that is there put together. And this is our waiting. We wait on this side of the tapestry, which on the other side will be seen for the beauty and glory that it is. Well, let's move then secondly to consider the awaiting of this display. And let's infer a couple of things with which the Jews had earlier struggled and which doubtlessly would have been a struggle to them at this time. Remember that they had ceased laboring Verse 24 of the previous chapter 4, Then ceased the work of the house of God which is at Jerusalem. So it ceased unto the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. And so it comes from Cyrus. There's building. It ceases unto Darius. Years pass by of waiting. And now they're reproved. Haggai, Zechariah come. The ministry stirs them up. But brethren, as here comes Tatnai and the letter goes off and they're waiting for the response of Darius, would there not have been a temptation to await in idleness? Well, let's just sit back and see what's going to happen. This is often our temptation that we're waiting for something to come to pass (coughs) and we think that waiting means idleness. Or we think, well, I don't know what's going to come to pass, so I'm permitted to be on pins and needles and anxiety. But the reality is, both of those are temptations to sin. Idleness and anxiety, understand this, is never commanded of God's people. There's never a command or a permission that comes to God's people and say, 
It's okay that you're anxious. It's okay that you're overrun with fear. In fact, we have the exact opposite. Fear not. We have the expression of faith. God is my refuge. I will not fear what man can do to me. God is for me. God is mine. Though the mountain should be removed and cast into the utmost part of the sea, yet will I not fear, for God is my God. See, as we await the outworking of God's decree through the sovereign administration of providence, we aren't permitted to sit back, wringing our hands in anxiety, wondering at these things. But we are rather reminded of our calling. And this is what you see throughout this chapter. As the letter is composed, as the investigation is going on, what is it that the elders do? Verse 5, previous to our passage, the eye of their God was upon the elders of the Jews that they could not cause them to cease. And you'll notice that when the letter is received by Tatnai, The elders of the Jews continued building, verse 14 of chapter 6, and they prospered, and so on. They don't stop. They're minding their calling. What is it that you and I are to do while we await the guaranteed display of the goodness of God in His providential outworking of every single detail? It is that we faithfully discharge our calling. There's no moment where we are called or permitted to sit idly by. We are called to give ourselves in the teaching of God what He has called us to do. Here we have Zerubbabel and Jeshua and their host. And what are they doing? They are working on the building of God's house. Why are they doing that? It's because they had the Word of God which called them to do that. Now you and I aren't called in the same manner to build a literal building called a temple. But we are called, as God's people, every day to serve the Lord. That's our calling. We can look more exacting at ourselves. If we're married, we have a spouse. That's our calling. If we have children, we have uh, responsibility toward them. We're members of a church. We have a responsibility one toward another. We have a job. That's our calling in that way. But each of those is under the ultimate calling which is to glorify God. Think of how Paul says it. Whether ye eat or drink, notice this expression, whatsoever ye do, do all to the glory of God. That's your calling. What are you to do when difficulties come? You're to eat and drink and do whatever else you do to God's glory. Am I not permitted to take a break from that? Absolutely not. You're not. You are never permitted to cease from your great calling. And that doesn't come with a whiplash as it with the great encouragement that God calls you to what is good for you. It is good for you to seek the Lord. It is good for you to trust the Lord. It is renewing to your soul to worship Him. He doesn't just call us to duties as it were that are brittle and which are frail. He calls us to duties which are life-giving. He calls us to worship the Lord. Sometimes we think, well, it's been so difficult, you know, I'll just take a break from Christian fellowship. I'll take a break from public worship. Brethren, that's to pursue a course 
that will only further hinder your soul. The Lord calls us to that which is good for us. Moreover, as we're awaiting, we are awaiting in faith because God who is faithful has promised He will perform His great good on our behalf. And to strengthen us in our waiting, consider then, thirdly, the blessing of the display. Why is it that we're to be diligent? Why is it that we're to be strong in faith? Well, because the blessing of the display will be to the good of the church. Notice how all of this works out in verses 14 and 15, that Darius makes his search, he finds Cyrus' decree, he reiterates it, as well strengthens it, Tatnai receives it, in verse 14, the elders of the Jews build it, they prospered through the prophesying of Haggai, the prophet Zechariah, the son of Iddo, and they build it and finished it according to the commandment of the God of Israel. All of these circumstances turn out for their benefit, their good. Now, brethren, this is, let's be very clear, this is to be expected. This is to be anticipated by us. That difficulties, obstacles, adversaries, all of these trials will turn to the good of the church. Guaranteed. Does this mean some won't capitulate? (coughs) Does this mean some won't depart the faith? Does this mean some won't have great and heavy difficulties and die in the midst of those difficulties? Not at all. But it does mean that even those details will most certainly be to the good of the church. You know, of course, those words which, when embraced by faith, minister such encouragement to our souls When Paul writes in Romans chapter 8, verse 28, we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to His purpose, and he launches into God's decree. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren, and so on. We read earlier in Ephesians chapter 1, what a great comfort it is to remember this, that God is the one who worketh all things after the counsel of His will, and that the one who is reigning on the throne over all heaven and earth is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 22 of Ephesians 1, "...hath put all things under His feet, and gave Him to be the head over all things to the church, that is, for the sake of the church, which is His body, the fullness of Him that filleth all and in all." And so we have these promises, but someone says, well, what about the real difficulties? It's around this time that there is the record of Esther. And you can see something here. The story doubtlessly is familiar to you in many parts. But notice in the book of Esther and chapter 4, something that often escapes our attention. Mordecai is persuaded that good's going to come. He doesn't presume that good is necessarily going to be experienced in his time, because he didn't have that promise. But he did have the sufficient promise that God will work all things together for good. And so he beseeches Esther in Esther chapter 4 and verse 13. Mordecai commanded 
to answer Esther, Think not with thyself that thou shalt escape in the king's house more than all the Jews. For if thou altogether holdest thy peace at this time, then shall their enlargement and deliverance arise to the Jews from another place. You catch that? He says, it's possible because of my perspective that you, Esther, will fail and you will die and you will suffer and we will suffer reproach. But let's be clear in something. Such is God's sovereign goodness to His people that enlargement and deliverance will arise to the Jews from another place. He's certain of that. He doesn't know what the detail is that's going to be, save that God would reveal that to us by His Word. But He is certain of the end. Enlargement and deliverance shall come. Brethren, what promise did Mordecai have? It's the same promise that you and I have. It's this. I will be your God. And you will be my people. You see, that promise is so rich for God's people at all times. If once we believe that word, we can rest securely, whatever comes to pass, I know this, God will order it, is ordering it, has ordered it, for the good of His people and the praise of His name. You and I sing with smiles on our faces and elation in our hearts, the Lord is my shepherd. If we sing that in faith, we're able to say as Mordecai, whatever else happens, I know this, deliverance will come. It may not come in this avenue that I was hoping it would come. It may not come in that avenue that someone else was saying it will come. But I know this, whatever avenue it comes, God will bring it. Because He will not forsake His people. He will not give them over. He will not cast them off. Brethren, you know there are promises that are remaining and awaiting their fulfillment. There are promises of the Jews returning and embracing Christ. What a thought. Have you ever gone in certain parts of St. Louis and you see the so-called temples, which we would call synagogues? You see the Jewish center and you wonder at these and so on. And you wonder and say, how is this going to happen? You know, what's going to take place? I don't know. You don't know. Apart from this, God will make it happen. We know it will be by the preaching of His Word. It won't be by the nonsense of dispensationalism, which is unfounded by God's Word. It will be by the basis of God's Word, which preaches Christ, the Savior of Jew and Gentile. And soon enough, at God's appointed time, the veil will be lifted, as Paul testifies, and they will turn again unto the Messiah. This is certain. It's not at all, as it were, left to chance. God is right now working that together. And it's good for us to think, well, I don't know if it will be in my generation. I don't know if it will be in my children's generation. But I know this. God is at work right now bringing this in due time to come to pass. It's true as well. Other promises of our personal good, God will bring to pass. God is faithful and His blessing will come to us. Notice in the book of Psalms how this is expressed. Many places we could go to, but you can see this in Psalm 34 and verse 19. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, 
That's not exactly something that we latch on to, is it? We don't say, well, you know, it's promised to us that many are the afflictions of the righteous, and so this is that. We don't say, well, you know, children, realize this, you're going to be afflicted much if you live a righteous life. But notice, though this is true, we have this promise, but the Lord delivereth him out of them all. Every single one. How does he do it? Well, he doesn't do it in the way that you and I would often do so. But he always does so in a way that is good. There may be ways in which he delivers us from evils that we didn't realize. Sins that would have led us to our own destruction. And he does it by afflictions. Do you remember years back now going through the book of Exodus? There's a little comment made that the Lord, instead of leading them the short way from Egypt to the promised land, He led them through the wilderness because He knew that they would encounter difficulties on the shorter way and faint and turn back. We often think, well, why is He not leading me in the easier way? I see, if I could just get that avenue, if I could just get that trajectory, if I could just have it that way, it would fall out good for me. And yet we don't realize that what we don't see is perhaps our destruction. We don't see how the Lord would lead us astray. We don't see how the good that is being brought to pass by the affliction outweighs the thought to be good that would lead to our destruction. Remember our perspective. It's limited. You know, you have these rookies and amateurs that think they know better than masters and craftsmen and so on, and they rush to their thoughts and decisions, and the master craftsman saying, listen, if you do it that way, it's going to fall apart, it's going to break, it's going to be ruined. And yet the rookie and amateur will fly and go and do their way, only to find that in putting off the master's uh, counsel, bring about destruction. Well, how much more in our own lives ought we to trust God who is sovereignly directing every detail unto our good. And brethren, the good of the church includes the good of the people in the church. Your good is bound up in His providential outworking, which will be displayed in due time. Someone might say, well, you know, I see what you're saying and, but let's be honest, this is just sort of the happenstance of activities. Tatnai must have been a decent man. He, instead of just doing his thing, wrote to Cyrus and, or to Darius, and Darius was a decent man and sort of taught uh, by virtue. He searched and found and so on. All of these things just sort of happened. And in fact, you know, you haven't proved your point because nowhere does it say God did this through Tatnai, God did this through Darius, and so on. However, Notice in verse 22 that it is that they kept the Feast of Unleavened Bread seven days with joy. For the Lord had made them joyful and turned the heart of the king of Assyria unto them. Who was it that was at work in Darius? It wasn't just, as we might think, the counsel of a mom or dad that trained him when a young boy. It wasn't just the political sort of positioning of what would be good here and self and personal vested interest to have a happy portion of my kingdom. Here it's telling us 
God sovereignly turned the heart of the king of Assyria to bless his people. The blessing of the display of providence to us is because God is in control over every detail. We rest assured in that. Well, brethren, as we close, as noted, this demands faith. There are times when we look and we see and we say, what I see can only mean heartache and pain. And frankly, we're right. There are things that happen in our lives that as they continue, only mean heartache and pain. This is why Paul was so earnest in saying, remove this thorn from my side. It wasn't because it was easy. It wasn't because it was uh, uh, pleasant. It's because it hurt him. And he's looking at it from his perspective. He's reasoning, if you would just remove this from me, I would be better able to serve you. Brethren, faith does as Paul does. My grace is sufficient for thee. My grace is sufficient for thee. My grace is sufficient for thee. Three times he's told that. And so what does Paul learn? He had to learn this, as you and I have to learn this. He learned to, think of this expression, to glory in his infirmities. You know what that means? He learned to boast of his infirmities. He learned to go to God and say, Lord, look at the weakness with which I'm possessed. Look at the difficulties that surround me. Look at the pain that I'm feeling. Because he learned, as God had taught him, that God's strength is made perfect in our weakness. Do you know what the Lord is ordering to your lives when he brings about these difficulties? He's making you see your weakness. And we so often want to be self-sufficient. We say, take this difficulty away from me so I can get at it. Wouldn't it be better if I could be all this diligent sort of uh, display of all manner of industry and the things of Christ and so forth? But what Christ is teaching to our souls is that reasoning's wrong. That your only usefulness in God's kingdom is as you are aware of your weakness and of your uttermost dependence on God's strength. And so the Lord has to teach us these things because we're born as natural men thinking the way of service is by being healthy and strong and my family's all in order and my finances are perfect and all of these things, you know, my uh, uh, rise in my business is going as uh, anyone could hope and I'm getting all manner of increases, and all these things are going well. My bill of health is all as it ought to be. And yet, if you look at Christians' lives, what do you see? Brokenness, wreck, problem, difficulty, sorrow, heartache, trial, affliction. Such that the world looks at it and says, I don't want to touch any of it. I don't want that kind of Christianity. I don't want kind of the, that kind of Christianity where struggles are going to be faced. I don't want the kind of Christianity where difficulties are going to be endured. But think again what Christ says. If any man would be my disciple, let him, and get the order, deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Christ has told us in myriad ways by explicit testimony 
where he says, all that will live godly in this life shall suffer persecution. He's told us that. He's told us, listen, in this life you'll have tribulation. He's told us that. He's prepared us for it, saying, look, if this is how they treat me, the king, know how they're going to treat you, the subjects. He's told us that. He's told us promises, look, you have to realize that I will provide everything you need. So seek first my kingdom and righteousness. He's exhorted us. He's commanded us. He's promised to us. He's taught us. He's illustrated it. He's lifted out. And yet it comes down to this. By God's grace, am I one who is going to trust Him? Or am I going to complain against Him? Am I going to submit to His wise and good ways even when my perspective, limited as it is, can't make sense of how it's going to come to pass? Even when it is because I don't have the vision of the future. I don't know if deliverance is going to come this way, that way, or another way. But I know that deliverance will come. That the church shall prosper. That the church shall advance. Because God has promised it. That it is not wasted to serve the Lord when all else falls apart, when all that I thought would be used of God isn't turning out the way that I thought it would turn out, that I am confident that there is no such thing as wasted faith, wasted service, wasted waiting upon the Lord. Brethren, the only way that such can come to pass is as we, by God's grace, trust Him. I will boast of my infirmity. Why? Because His strength is made perfect in my weakness. And I know that He will order this for His glory and good. Well, here is encouragement as well. The trials that come must explicitly be remembered by us as this fact. God is at work in every detail. What we could have, if we were in Zerubbabel's and Joshua's day, what we could have reasoned to come out, you know, how, how do we reason? Uh-oh, I see what Tatnai's doing. I know what's coming. You know what's coming? Let me tell you. Tatnai's going to write to Darius. Darius is going to get all manner upset. He's going to send forces. Now we're going to die. We're going to suffer. We're going to be all sorts of disappointed. The temple's destroyed. It's all over and so forth. Right? That's how we reason. Instead of reasoning, well... It may be that trials come. It may be that there's a further affliction. It may be that Darius does something that is contrary to what we hope is going to come to pass. But even if that happens, I know this. God will prosper His cause. You remember Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? They stand there at the fiery furnace. And what is it? But the king says, bow down to my image. Listen, we're not going to bow down to your image. God will defend us. God will intervene. And even if He doesn't, yet we're not going to do it. There's the confidence of God that even if He doesn't deliver outwardly in time, He will fulfill His promise that when we die, He will keep us and raise us up and in the face of every man, woman, and child say these words, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. There's encouragement to know that God is at work even in the trials, even in the afflictions. God is 
not only will, but God is caring for His church. And so we ought to be those who labor diligently in the things that God presents to us, even when afflictions come, even when sorrows come, because this is what we realize. God is weaving it together in time to come for the display of His merciful, His good, His gracious, His delightful, His glorious providence that one day all the earth, you and I included, will say all that He's done is good. Would you stand with me for prayer?